I wanted to try to create something that was like mimetic to the act of living. You know, one of the things is that no one gets to live in memoir alone, um, that our life is a mixture of genres. I think that though poets, we have form and rules, poetry is a free-for-all. You can do whatever you, you want. We're not bound by those rules. And so I kind of came with that poetic sense of what language can do. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Today's guest is Haviza Jeter, a literary agent and writer. Her first book was a poetry collection called Un-American, and her most recent book is a memoir called The Black Period, which sometimes sidles into poetry, into criticism, and other more experimental forms. The Black Period tells the story of her upbringing as the daughter of two Nigerian immigrants who was raised in Ohio and South Carolina. Her parents, in her words, centered Blackness and art. Her father's a painter, and his paintings are woven throughout the book. Her mother, who died suddenly when Hafisa was 19, suffused her daughter's lives with music, art, dance, and ideas that, she writes, meant my sister and I were reared in a world that reflected our image, a world where Blackness was a world of possibility. Throughout the book, she works with this concept that she calls the Black period, which she associates with the creative and philosophical space her parents created during her childhood, in which Blackness was synonymous with community, joy, creativity, shared struggle, and freedom. I say the Black period and mean home in all its shape-shifting ways, she writes, one where, if not our bodies, then our minds could be free. This book is explicitly an attempt to write her way back to that space as an adult, one whose experiences with racism, Islamophobia, chronic pain, and homophobia alienated her from that feeling of freedom. Over and over again, she engages a question that was first posed by the critic Parul Segal. What would it look like to emerge from erasure? We get to talk about that question, compassion fatigue, and much more. Here's Hafisa Jeter. We all experience compassion fatigue, especially in the world of, you know, 24-hour news and Twitter. It seems that, you know, there's there is a political emergency every five minutes. There's a climate emergency that is perpetually raging. There's civil rights emergency, human rights emergencies. And one gets the feeling that one could die from the heartbreak of caring about all of this. And I think to write this book, I really had to push past that fatigue and that threshold of just needing to look away from my own self-preservation and try to find, okay, what is it that fatigues me out of care? And how do I move through that in order to write a story that is focused in the we versus the I? Yeah. It seems like you locate some of your earliest experiences with understanding the the importance of of caring for the collective um, and experiencing the collective in what you call the black period mm -hmm. constructed by your parents and your family and your community. Can you, but you also use that term a little bit more poetically or more broadly in the book. I was wondering if you could just talk me through, talk us through what, what the black period is 
in this in this context? Yeah, I mean, the black. I think the black period has like multiple meanings, but I think at its core, it speaks to what what people of color, black people, indigenous people, disabled communities, queer communities, like Muslim communities, what what we all seek, and that is lives of dignity, where our dignity is honored. And we live in worlds and countries that doesn't allow that space. And so we have to build these spaces inside of these really oppressive structures. And so the Black period speaks to to those moments uh, and those forms of community that we build inside of violence. Because, I mean, the fact that Black people have survived this country is incredible. The fact that Indigenous people, you know, have survived this country is incredible because of the massive amounts of violence. But we do that by creating sites of care within our communities. And I think that is that is no small thing because especially as Black people, we live, we're essentially inside a system of capitalism that by design was only designed to sell us and to own us. And so then we had to build a life inside of that, inside of our captor's language. And I think it speaks to I think uh, Robin Wall Kimmer described it as like the genius of community um, and how our communities essentially, what we do in community is its own technology. It's its own like form of science, of art. Um, And so I wanted to find something that could hold all of that. And, you know, in the prologue of the book, I kind of speak to how I came about that. Like my father is an artist. He did the cover and the book has about 66 images in it that are his throughout his career um, throughout his life. And one of the things my, fa- the painters, my father has always loved is Francisco Goya. And he has always loved Goya's black paintings, which if you haven't seen them are terrifying. They're essentially painted essentially in blacks and grays. Um, and they show the dark heart of man. They show like a mind and people in, in that are both terror being terrorized and the terror themselves. But and whenever I saw those, I could never understand what my father's fascination with them. This seemed like the stuff of nightmares. But for my father, his whole thing was like, do you understand how hard it is to paint in blacks? That where I saw it, like just something very frightening. And my father was just look, he saw skill. And to show that it was a lesson that it mattered who looked and what and how you looked and what you knew around what you looked what you were seeing and trying to really apply that lesson into, um, you know, the rest of my life and living and how I, the lens in which I was applying to the communities I was looking at in this book. Yeah. The other person who you sort of credit with some of those early ideas, not just about art and about community, but kind of about life and the way you wanted to participate in the world as both a looker and a maker, as you, as you call yourself in the book, is, is your mom, who's, who's a huge, huge part of this piece. Um, would you tell me a little bit about her, her role in the Black period as it, as it sort of emerged in your, in your thinking and in this book? Yeah, I think for, you know, all of us, like the mother, our mothers are a central figure. And my mother died suddenly of a stroke when I was 19. And at this point, I've essentially 
lived as much of my life without her as I had with her. And there's something about grief that can really, it can change the way memory works. And it can, it can change, changing the way memory works. It means it's changing your access to your life. And my mother, my mother died uh, shortly after 9-11. And it was a very hot bed, like, it means it still is a very hostile place for Muslim people, but that was a particularly unique time. And we were in the South and just, there was the, the lack of empathy or even sympathy that I seemed to get at the fact that my mother, this Muslim woman was dead was, was both isolating, but also terrifying, like trying to understand, like, what does that mean? And you can't grieve through that. And so part of this book was also an attempt at trying to recover my memories that, okay, like now that I understand, you know, so many things as an adult, not just about myself, but also about this country, I started to look at the way, okay, you know, our grief really is a political condition. We can understand that very much now through COVID. It's easy to understand that, like, it didn't have to be this way. Um, all these deaths, all this government abandonment, and this grief we feel didn't have to be this way. But like, our grief, right, is 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 government designed, um, and it's designed by the by just like the inherent nature of what capitalism is designed to do. That like, this was the this is the only result that capitalism could produce. Um, and so, but also looking at okay, like why. Was there's just why did I feel this just kind of like white out around my like my mother and it was it was deal it was because of the high Islamophobia of that time um, and like and the lack of care that I got from so many people around me that this like Muslim woman was dead um, because you know that was that was, especially during that time that was the point that like Muslim people were supposed to be dead as a response to 9-11 um, and revenge and, you know, all these other things. And so really trying to kind of like navigate that, you know, trying to remember who she was and the way she tried to help her children like build a life. And she, she came to this country, I think like at like age 34 to like live here and to start over and to be away from everything and everyone she knew. And I think that there's something just like, really, I needed to look at just like the strength in that and the way that like my mother essentially tried to, in 90s Akron, Ohio, try to figure out how to raise half Nigerian, half American kids, you know? And this kind of, just like watching the ways our parents had to kind of improvise how they not just raised us, but like, that allowed us to have a sense of self despite everything this country intended us to have. And my mother did that through Kwanzaa. Like my, my father was always teaching or running or like painting or running the art gallery. So my mother really was the parent who we spent most of our time with. And she really tried to imbue us with both a sense of, you know, black pride and African pride. And, you know, we had to, we memorized the names of black people who did all the first. We had to, she taught us African dance lessons as children and to like her black American friends. We had to, the first poems I ever memorized or ever knew were because of my mother. Um, 
And we used to have to memorize poems at the beginning, like during our African dance class lessons that we'd perform at Kwanzaa. And I think of just like how much of who she was formed me and how, how I could not understand myself until I remembered her again. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's this trajectory that the book describes of, of the book as a kind of homecoming to yourself, right? This yeah. and, and correct, correct anything I say that's not a that's not a good paraphrase or a good summary. Yeah. But the way that I I read it was that the the book and the writing of the book is this way of coming back to yourself after experiencing really really intense alienation because of yes. the the many ways that that this world um, is designed to alienate people of your various intersecting identities, women, black people, queer people, um, people from, you know, Muslim family and on and on and on and on. Yeah. And, um, that, that it, it, you write as though you went through this intense period of feeling really alienated, not just from the world, but also from yourself and that the writing is a way of coming home to yourself and to your family and to a, a kind of feeling of a, of abundance, which is a word that you use, um, that you associate with that concept of the black period, um, which is, which ties into what you were saying at the beginning of the getting yourself to write the book was about getting yourself over the threshold of, you know, coming, opening back up to the world. Um, which I, which I say as a prelude to asking, um, how did you, what brought you to that point when you felt ready and when when you realized that writing was was maybe the door i mean i don't know if there was a point that i realized writing was the door versus the fact that for me writing has always been the only door um it's the only thing i've been good at um and the only thing i've been inclined to always want to do and so i you do i think you do what you feel called to and writing has always felt to be my life purpose and by having a father who's an artist, I saw what it what it meant to live your life purpose and that it wasn't easy, it required courage, but you just but you just had to do it. And it what whatever you're doing had to be helping people. And so I think that for me, that there was never another path but this one in writing. And in terms of how I came to that, I think that it really wasn't until I was in it that I really even recognized what I was doing. And I, I, I think that one of the, sometimes the, one of the best things that we can do as writers is kind of like lean on each other. And you, there's always that saying that like writing is a solitary process, but it never really feels like that to me because in whether it's like in my mind or even on the page, I'm in conversation with other writers I love. And one of the things I think helped me kind of get through through this is I remember I was I'd I'd had you know a a draft of the book like done and but the whatever it was still not yet what it was going to be and I could sense that and I needed something to do I needed something a way through it and so I intentionally I'm just like I, I I I'm like, I let me go see, find what other writers are doing. And so I went in search of of a question that I could, that, that I could answer. And for me, that question became um, a question that I borrowed from a book critic, Carl Sagal, where she asks, where she asks like, what would it look like to emerge from erasure? 
It's a question that I loved because it wasn't, what does it mean to emerge from erasure? It was, what does it look like? It literally demanded an action plan. And so, because like, wasn't this the question that I was asking throughout this? Like, to, like, how do I come back into a shape, into a form? And so I thought, okay, what if instead of just like trying navigating this question inside of myself, like I do this on the page, and what if I actually try to answer it? And I think you know, I come to that answer. I don't think it's a big of a spoiler, but I come to that answer through with another writer, Toni Morrison's this idea of rememory which is essentially taking your past and writing the narrative that you, the narrative that you need that you can survive in and that's kind of what it what I do because one of the things I'm grappling with is you know my mother died at, when I was 19 so we didn't have a lot of conversations but she was a muslim woman and a woman of her time and so I always had to wonder she died before I came out so I always had to wonder like how would she feel about this? And that's a question that could tear you, like you just like tear you apart inside. And finally, I just had to write, I say, right, I say in the book, I had to write a story that would allow me to be whole. That doesn't mean I write an easy story, but that, but it does mean I have to write the story. You know, I can't leave it to this mystery, this like, this, this land of disappointments and rejections, because I don't have proof that that is true either. And so that's just the place I'm landing at because I'm conditioned to land there. And so I, and so this book really, I really kind of took that question to heart of what would it look like to emerge from erasure and try to do that on the page. And sometimes that involved a going forward, but also stylistically it it, it, I tried to show that it also involved sometimes you just have to keep doubling back. And I really kind of thought of in my mind, this infinity symbol, this idea of like looping, uh, like looping back and forth through progress and through trying to, to the, the work of becoming. Um, and I tried to show that stylistically and the way the book is formed and kind of show that like, even though you have to loop backward, to go forward, that there is that there is endless possibility in that. This book has a really unusual form. It is a it is a big book. It's a long book. It's got m- many parts. Not all of them sort of hew to the same format. Yeah. Um, they they traverse different eras of your life. They have different styles. How did you um, how did that sort of emerge compositionally? And then how did you make choices about construction? Yeah, I think that. And I wanted to try to create something that was like mimetic to the act of living. And I think I, one of my agent, Aisha Pandey and I were talking about this, you know, one of the things is that no one gets to live in memoir alone, um, that our life is a mixture of genres. And I'm also uh, a poet. I got, I've got two MFAs, but I got my first MFA in poetry from Columbia College, Chicago. And I think that though poem poets we we have form and rules. Po- poetry is a free for all. You can do 
whatever you, you want. We're not bound by those rules. Um, and so I, I think that I kind of came with that poetic sense of what language can do, um, with the, and I, the thing I always love about the thing that really draws me to poetry is, and, and one of the things that makes, for example, Jean Valentine, one of my favorite poems is a poet is the line break that a poet, that no poem is just one poem. It is the poem of like the full, but also the poem of the line breaks and that how much meaning can be imbued. And this idea that like I interviewed Jean Valentine once and she's kind of like spoke about the line break is that you build the bridge and you trust the reader to cross it. And so, and I really loved that. And I love how she trusted the reader and our, and we did, we, we, we minded the gap and we crossed it. And so I wanted to do that also stylistically. I, I, I hope that I think one of the things I hope that my book shows is, is that I have a deep, deep trust of readers that I believe that, like that they, that this will be, that they will be able to navigate through this and that like they will that they will want to and be rewarded and that the fact that this is showing them that I understand the ways we have to live and so I think that in terms of, there's like for example I, there's a chapter that's in a kind of like epistolary and it's um a letter to kind of addressed to my late Nigerian grandmother uh Yaya and it's essentially in prose blocks and what like uh one of the things I was exploring with that is my grandmother died when I was in college. She died after my mother. Um, but between us was the land, there was a divide of not just generations. It was of, of actual, just like miles of space between me and Nigeria, but of language. She, she, she did not speak English. And so the few times like we got to see her again, like the only name, the only word she could say that I could understand were our names. And so this is written prose blocks to kind of like, to speak to the lacunas between us, you know, that there's some things that like now in the, now that, now that is now that she's dead, that she and I can speak unencumbered. And so I wanted that to kind of like, to speak to that ghostly, that ghostly space, but also to honor kind of like the line breaks or just like the, the gaps between generations that's caused by, by migration, by assimilation. Cause that also separated us. Like I was her, I became her Americanized grandchild um, because most of my, my mother's siblings there, they stayed or mainly raised their children in Nigeria. And so I really became her, be my sister or the Americanized, like, like a, line of our Nigerian family. And so I wanted to speak to that. Um, yeah, this, um, this discussion of lacunas is really interesting. I mean, there's, and it's also something you write explicitly about in the book and it's making me wonder what felt like the biggest gap or blank space, um, or line break in this book to you that maybe you wish you could have filled whether that's something you, you know, an answer you never got or material that wasn't there in the archive for you to work with, or maybe even something, you know, a question that goes unanswered for you thematically. Um, I'm curious where the, 
where the gap is that was most felt by you? I don't, I think that, as you said, it's a big book. I feel like I got to do most of, I got to do most of what I wanted to do. Um, and which is, I think a lucky thing. Cause like, it's not often that we always get to say that, you know, I think about my poetry book and I'm just like all the things that like, I like to do. Um, but I feel, I think I feel satisfied with the, uh, the piece that I found, I found peace after it. Tell me more about that. Uh-oh, I shouldn't have said that. I have to prove it. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> Obviously, I had to ask a follow-up. Um, you know, I think that, you know, just coming to peace about however my mother may or may not have felt about like my queerness, um, that I think I write in the in the final chapter about like having to kind of like write a story that can allow me to be whole, that the fact that both me and, and my mother, we are products of our colonizers. And there is a chance I would have had to, I think I would say like, there was a chance, there's a chance I would have had to lead her back to the black period where she could love me again. That's all a possibility. But, but like, I can choose to believe that she would have gotten there, you know? Um, and so I think that that helped. And I think also when you, when you get so conditioned to, kind of this dissociation of grief of not remembering and you just allow that blankness to be there for so long, that blankness or that lacuna, it, it, it becomes so it, ha- it mythologizes itself and you become scared to look to know what's there at all. And what's there, what you think is there becomes, becomes far scarier than what might be there in actuality. And so I think that, because there's also the fear of like, okay, what if I tried to remember my mother and like I just couldn't and there was nothing there to remember, you know, like I'd lost it from so long of trying not to, to look. Um, and so I think that the the idea that I could look back and not and not just look back, but like write back towards this and essentially like not die, I think was incredible. Um I th- that was just that you could that I could survive that, and I think really the biggest thing was being able to work through all the shame, all this like nameless shame that like I had accumulated, and like really having to like re- to just like really look that like that I th- I think I write somewhere in here that like you know shame is America testing how long its history can last because the people who are ashamed who are t- are conditioned to carry the shame are the people who have been violently oppressed in this country. And so I think being able to kind of like set down that, I think as Lauren Helene uh, writes, that that psychic colonization was, I think that was a huge piece for me. Yeah. One of the methods that you use kind of to work on that shame and work against that shame seems to be, or is explicitly because you you write about this um, is looking outward or sort of expanding the frame of what you can see in terms of how oppressions are and 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 violences are linked um, between, for example, black people in America, the, the history of indigenous people in America. You write about the Holocaust. You write you're, you're sort of 
casting the net very wide in terms of looking at how existing systems um, hurt people and oppress people. And that, that drawing those connections seems like a very, very important piece of this work. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that one of the, I mean, one of the most detrimental things to any power structure, whether like from capitalism to our government, which is kind of the same thing, um, is community. Um, and so I, and this idea that if you, I think Miriam Kaba talks about like, you know, one of the points of organizing is to help us understand who we're supposed to be mad at. You know, if you, if you live in a situation where your schools are underfunded, your, your communities are terrorized by the police, where you don't have healthcare and you, and all these other things are just like you're drowning in. If you don't know any, if you don't have like the tools to understand like the structures that are oppressing you and you just feel like that, like my life is mysteriously like this. Like that is, that is such a, such a, it's, a, it's just a straight drowning. You can't, you can't breathe in that space. Um, but that is, that is the goal is for us to, to make the average person feel like they bear the responsibility for like the conditions that are clearly state designed. Um, and the fact that community can disrupt that black people are, are proof that working in community can disrupt these things because we were never meant to be free. And when you look at, I think one of the things I really wanted to get across in the book is that, that while our oppressions are different, like for example, looking at the history of indigenous people um, in the US and black people, our oppressions might be different, but our oppressors are what we have in common and how can we dismantle like the, the platform that our oppressors have and work together and that there, that, that like, that is actually possible because, you know, there's that statistic that no government can, can, um, survive, uh, sustained protests from like 3.5% of its population. You think about that number, like that's all that's standing between us and freedom. And it's just like, of course we have to work together. Um, of course that we, that we have to, protect black trans women. Of course we have to protect trans kids. And the idea that someone can ask why to that is that is for like trying to make people see that if you have to ask why people should be protected, you yourself have been robbed of a part of your, of yourself, of your humanity that, because that question doesn't, that why question doesn't make sense of like, why do we have to protect someone's like safety, right to life, like to, to be put in a position to, to just say why to that, like, it doesn't make sense to me. And so I really wanted to show that, you know, in community is how we survive this. It's how black people have survived because this, this country like actively tries to kill us. And it's one of those reasons that I think that like, sometimes I think I write about with black people, you, you don't know, you can't, sometimes you can't tell the difference between like a black people when they're together organizing or just at a party. And it's also why even a black lives matter press protest, there could be so many emotions, both rage and joy, because the joy comes when we're in community. And like, you can see that through like, you know, the history of home going, like it's how we literally send 
people off into the afterlife. Yeah. The, as you're talking about this concept of community as in, in the many, many forms it can take, um, and working together and working alongside, I'm thinking about how many voices you bring into this book. There are so many other writers and musicians and artists. There's so much visual art. There are all of these works by your father that are in the book. Um, There's this whole long, incredible section on um, the original Women of the Blues and on blues singing. There are so many, um, so many writers that you're sort of working, working with Mm -hmm. and working alongside. Um, It feels that there, to me, it feels like there's this real collectivity uh, like you're bringing a lot of people into the room with you, into the room yeah. of the book with you. Uh, and I I just wanted to to talk to you about that. I wanted to ask you um, how you decided who you wanted in, in the room and sort of what your ethic toward that is aesthetically, if it differs at all from kind of the political ethic you're you're spelling out here. Yeah, I think that, you know, just by the nature of being a black person, you're never in the room alone. You're you're always crowded by ancestors and that by by being raised by parents who were attuned to to imbuing their children with a sense of pride and of black history the names of people of other people were always being evoked you know um my my parents like loved music my father used to be like a singing group in nigeria and th- there was always motown or like or African music playing or Filikuti playing, there was always, we always had other black voices in the room. And I, and like my father, like he had like a huge CD collection. We would go to his art gallery. We would just like play CDs from like Otis Redding to Nancy Wilson, like um, all these sorts of, uh, of different genres. And, and one of his very good friends from Nigeria was Yusuf, Yusuf Latif. And so we, and Yusuf would always send us his CDs. So we'd also listen to his music. And so it was always and like, you know, my father is an artist. And so art was, I was always surrounded by different types of art, make art, modes of art. So, you know, by my mother would, would like uh, send us to Kwanzaa events and where there's always African dancing, there's always an African drum. Um, our parents, like they hired like African storytellers for the kids to tell stories. And so we were, there was never, there is no, I think raised, being raised by an artist, there is no separation between art and life. And that's also a reason why I don't, I, I don't know how I could tell a story without my father's life, without my father's art in there, because I can, I can remember, I can look at one of my father's painting and tell you what my mother's hair looked like that year. I can Tell you what house we lived in by looking at by looking at like how his styles change. And so part of his art, it's 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 how I remember my life, and it's also how I was taught to look at what my responsibility is as an artist. feel what does it look like for you now on the other side of writing this book um 
Where do you stand with that question of sort of turning back toward community, making your that that kind of like threshold of the heart movement? I mean, I I think that I feel I feel like it's definitely the right the path that I'm meant to be on as a writer. Um, that one of the, the stories like my father loves to tell, like, you know, he's like a dad who loves to tell all this, the same stories, like everyone else, uh, all the other dads, but he loves to say that when, he, when he came back from a summer or from a semester at Ohio university where he got his, uh, BA and MFA in art, he brought home his first piece and it was kind of like, just like a still life of bottles and my grandmother says to my father, like, that's nice, but why are you doing it if it's not helping anybody? And after that, he just kind of like reoriented his mind that like whatever he did, it had to make, it had to be attuned to the we. And that is, that is how I think like by and large black people are raised in the we. And part of that is by the nature of how politics and like this, the history of this country binds us together in harm and the way it assigns like, you know, one action by one to be blanketed over us. But also I think in the ways that we, I think are attuned to justice. Um, and I think just look at like the way black women vote. Right. Um, and so I think that, yeah, this book has me really thinking about other ways to tune to the, to the, we, and one of the parts of, I mean, this is a, for this book, even though it's a hybrid of forms, one of the things that it is is heavily researched. I read hundreds and hundreds of of books and of, and just like articles and just used to make podcasts, so many resources, and I included about like the most three the three hundred most important ones that uh, in the in the book. And I think that that's also one of my aims as a writer is. I'm one of those people that like JSTOR is my favorite place. I love JSTOR. <laughs> I love reading. I just like love it because I, I just love going in there and typing in random things. Like I, I found an article there on like the archaeology of night. I'm like, what is this? Um, and because whatever you've dreamed of, someone is doing scholarship on it. And so I, I think that, but like scholarship often becomes like, it becomes about, it's about us it about people, but often becomes inaccessible to the people to read for like general populations because it can be very dense and a lot of people don't have the time. And so also I see my work as how can I, one, be a mouthpiece for other people who are other brilliant writers um, because this book touches on like, you know, abolition and how this is tied to the personal work, how like we can tie the personal work of abolition to the larger project of abolition. And so I really see my work as being a translator to how to help to synthesize and connect these ideas um, to kind of like a wide narrative audience. And so I think that this is kind of just like, this is the vein of my work, the we. Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshawood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at LitHub Radio. 
You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week.